0: We turn to Romans. Romans chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 14. We'll finish the 12th chapter tonight as so we continue this amazing book. And as we've entered into this duty section where we're really applying the things that uh, we learned in chapters really 1 through 8 in their entirety, but very specifically uh, the middle chapters there, 4 through 8. You you see, it really is the more difficult part to not just simply have these things applied to us, but then to live them out. And I'm not sure there's any more difficult passage of Scripture to actually live out than the one that now faces us picking up in verse 14 and down through the end of the chapter. And these things are supernatural living. They're they're lives that are impossible to live apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, apart from Christ dwelling in us richly in all things, apart from us actually being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. If you're not in Christ, you can forget about living out the rest of this chapter. It is not gonna happen. Matter of fact, I would say to you that more than likely the exact opposite of what is taught here as truth uh, will be most people's experience apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, It is truly supernatural living but most importantly this is how you actually win friends, win loved ones, and win your enemies. And so as we continue now and pick up Uh, In verse 12, would you pray with me, and let's ask the Lord to speak uh, through the power of his word. Father, we thank you for what you are going to do tonight, and as we study this amazing passage, Lord, we confess before we even read it that for some of us it seems impossible. Lord, that we could actually bless those who persecute us, that we could actually Love those who hate us. Lord, that we could be that much different than the world it seems to be an impossible task, but it's not. And you have declared it as truth in your word. And so we pray that you'd cause us not just to hear these words, but to be doers of them. And, and in doing so, truly live lives that are supernatural. So we bless you. We praise you. Speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14, here it goes. The impossible task. He says, in light of what we've already seen up to this point in this chapter, bless those who persecute you. And then it takes it a step further. Bless and do not curse. You see, it's one thing to bless someone who's done something that maybe isn't all that wonderful. But it's also even, I think, more difficult to not retaliate. Amen? Amen. To not do something back that seems to be uh, a, a payment for that which is rendered to you. And so you can see the impossible nature of this in simply your flesh. And he goes on to say, rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, it seems like an easy one, but can I tell you, it's an awful lot more difficult than it seems at first glance. Because sometimes when other people are rejoicing, we actually get a little envious, don't we? Anybody ever looked at somebody whose life is going good when yours is going bad and saying, oh, their day's coming? <laughs> you see, these things really are impossible without the Lord. To weep with those who weep. Again, seems like it is a natural response, but can I tell you, people run from those who weep. They don't weep with those who weep. Very often, they want to get as far away as they can because they want their life to just simply be happy and joyous. And when someone's going through a hard time, instead of weeping with them, we run from them so we don't have to experience their pain. Be of the same mind towards one another. And so this first part is towards us as believers. And he says, do not set your mind on high things. And it's not talking about, you know, being intellectual. It's not talking about someone who is maybe more intelligent than another person. It's talking about thinking more highly of yourself than you really should. But associate with the humble. Associate with the humble. Humble. Be around people from whom you can get nothing. A lot of people that want to associate with people who can give them something. Maybe have an opportunity to change their life through that relationship. And sometimes we pick and choose those whom we're going to associate with simply by what they can give us. Don't do it. And he says, don't be wise in your own opinion. Can I tell you, there's an awful lot of people who have many opinions about how this church ought to function, what it ought to look like, what we ought to do. Uh, But when you ask them where they got those opinions from, uh, you find out they've never pastored a church As a matter of fact, they don't actually read their Bibles. They just simply have opinions. Uh, Everybody's got opinions. And you need to be careful how you express yours because everybody's got them. So this next group here in Paul's list of supernatural Christian life, supernatural living, uh, is our duty that is everyone in general. This is really talking about Believers, unbelievers. is talking about humanity, if you will. And I want you to see these things as we look at them. And it begins with loving the unlovable and, and heaping healing on people who are hurt and blessing those who are hateful. These are supernatural things. They're not your natural response. They're exactly the opposite of what your flesh very often tells you to do. And so one of the things that people always say, well, how do I know that I'm a child of God? When you start thinking this way as a natural occurrence of your life, you know there's something different about you. When you actually look at someone who's wronged you and you go, you know what, I wonder what has hurt them so badly that they would do that or say that. You begin to think to yourself, I need to pray for that person because they they must be going through something in their heart and their mind to be that angry with me. You see, you start to think so differently. and no place are these things more visible, can I tell you, than in marriage. So if you want to practice them, practice these things at home first. And once you get them good there, make sure you take them out into the world. The first thing... Bless those who persecute you, and there's a ton of them here. Uh, We're going to look at really 12 different things as we go through this passage tonight in its entirety, and man, is this a difficult admonition, and maybe it isn't for you, it is for me. To bless those who persecute you. Now, let me be really clear here. You're to bless those who persecute you for Christ's sake, You know, some people are just mean-spirited and ornery, and that's the reason you're being persecuted. It's not because you're being like Jesus, you're being persecuted because you're just not nice. Make sure that you have this correct. The Lord is actually saying that when you're persecuted for the cause of Christ, make sure that you bless them because what you can do as you do that is draw them to the Savior, Now it's a good thing to bless people who treat you wrongly all the time, but it is most useful when you're being persecuted because you have shared a truth with somebody, because you've lived a life that's godly, and you have actually had an impact in somebody's life so much so that your godliness actually irritates them. Anybody ever had that happen where your godliness irritated, especially one of your family members? Oh, I've I've had this in my family a bunch. It's like, oh, it's him, Pastor Jeff. You know, you can hear the condescension and the mocking tone, you know, it's just, it's like, and then you get the usual, well, don't preach at us. Oh, I'm just trying to live godly in Christ Jesus. And it's hard to love people like that. It's hard to take that, not just don't do evil to them, but bless them. And I want to tell you something, Paul is really paraphrasing Jesus' words here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these very things there in Matthew 5 and in Luke chapter 6, as he says there, I say to you, those who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And he goes on to give some examples of that type of living. If someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other one. If someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic. Someone wants you to walk one mile, go two. He, he says, the way that you know that these things are real in your life, they become your natural response from your new creation in Christ Jesus, not the natural man, but the new creation in Christ. You all of a sudden begin to respond like this uh, a vast majority of the time. No place was it more visible than what Jesus said from the cross. Think about it for a second. All that Jesus went through, he was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin, amen? So there was nothing in Jesus that when he was put to death on Calvary's cross... When he was beaten and bruised for our iniquities, when when the chastisement of our peace was placed upon him, there was nothing he did that warranted that. He had done nothing but good. Anyone who had need, he gave to them. If they were sick, he healed them. If there was something going on in, in their lives, he ministered to them. Jesus was eternally, from day one, good to everyone. And yet, what happened on the cross? Pain of pain, evil of evil. The the worst thing that can happen to a human being is done to him. And at the end of his time hanging on Calvary's cross, what does he say? It's recorded for you there in Luke's gospel in chapter 23. He said to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, he's taking the extra step of not cursing them, but blessing them. He had every right to say, well, in essence, Father, damn them. If this is how they're going to treat me, your son, can you, can you see the logic behind what I'm saying, the reasoning? You see, Jesus had every right to say, Father, get him. Destroy him. If this is how they treat grace, then have at them, Father God. But he didn't. That's what's so powerful about this. When you don't return evil for evil, but rather give good in the place of evil you are being exactly like Jesus because that's what he did for you and I. That's what happened on the cross. In a a nutshell, that's what he did. And by the way, in Acts chapter 7, you see the exact same example in the life of Stephen. Stephen is innocent. He's been tried before the Sanhedrin. The apostle Paul himself is holding the garments of those who will stone him to death, and out from underneath the pile of stones, he is nearly dead. He said, Father, do not hold these sins against them. That's blessing those who persecute you. That, that's taking the time to say, you know... I've wrongly persecuted people myself. I, I've done things that I, I'm ashamed of, but I can tell you they weren't done in a vacuum. And probably, most every person in here has reasons in your life for why you have felt the way you felt, for why you responded the way you responded. As you live out your life here on this earth in Christ Jesus, you have some of the attitudes that you have because you've been hurt, because you've been forsaken, because you've been treated wrongly. You've suffered racial injustice. You've been passed over for a job. You have every right and every reason to feel the way you feel. The question is in Christ, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to choose to do with the grace of God in that moment that you are faced with being persecuted because you're a child of God? Because a child of God is going to look at that situation very differently. It's going to look to do good to bless and to not curse. Peter, many years after the Lord's ascension, said this in First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. Can you say that tonight? That you so trust God to make all things right that you will bless those who have hurt you that you'll work out as much as it lies with you as we'll see at the end of this passage to live at peace with all men. Now the next part of this, to bless and not to curse, it, it kind of dovetails, it, it, it ponies off of, it, it becomes a comprehensive statement of, of two things really, but not only to bless, but don't do the other thing which is really easy. And one of the things we struggle with as parents initially is trying to figure out how to discipline our children. It's one thing to acknowledge that they've done something wrong. It's another thing to handle that wrong properly. Amen, parents? Amen. To, you know, because you, you want to go, well, you almost killed yourself. I'm going to finish you off next time. Don't you dare put me through this again, you know, kind of thing. That, that's the, you see, that's the wrong way. That's the cursing them. You want to bless them. It applies to your children. Can I tell you, it applies to everybody else on this planet too? To go the extra mile. You know, I think of this back in the 1960s. You know, we used to have a, we would just say, oh, rats. Well, this is rats double, this is triple rats right here. This is like, really? Seriously? I mean, it's one thing, I, okay, I'm going to try and be nice to them, but couldn't I just wish a little bit of evil would come their way? We think that way, don't we? But that's not what we're to do. We're not only to bless them, we're also to think the very best of them to the point of wishing them not only no harm, but Good. Man, that's transformative in the way that we live, isn't it? It is for me. Family, it is for me. When I can look at someone who's hurt me and take the extra step of blessing them and not thinking evil of them, I know there's something good going on in my heart. Thank you, Jesus, for that work. Amen? You see, here's the real problem with this. If you don't live this way as a child of God, here's what will happen to you, and I, I don't wish this on anyone. But the result of not doing this is unrepentant bitterness and anger and hatred and strife, and it will destroy you from the inside out. You see, if you can't learn to forgive even people who've hurt you, you'll carry that around. It'll destroy your life. It'll hurt you in ways you can't even imagine. It'll affect the way you see people. It will affect your good relationships, not just your bad ones. A third thing, see it with me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, again, at first blush, this almost looks like, well, that kind of goes without saying. It's like, who doesn't do that? Let me tell you, a lot of people don't do this. Not only do they not rejoice with people who are rejoicing, they get upset, they get angry, they wonder why God didn't bless them that way. You know, how come God didn't give me that husband and God didn't give me that wife and didn't give me that car and didn't give me that house and didn't give me that job and that bank account. And not only are we not rejoicing, we're actually going, well, they don't deserve it. You see, it goes a little bit deeper than what it looks as you first look at this. It gets to the heart of the issue of when we rejoice. We are to rejoice again, Paul said, always, amen. Again, I say rejoice. We're supposed to rejoice when something good happens to someone, even if it's something that we desperately want to happen to us but hasn't. You see, these are attitudes that translate into actions. These are internal principles that have become external ways of life. They're visible. And so as you think on this manner of living, this duty towards everyone, really in general, you see exactly how deep this goes. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, if one member is honored, all mem- members rejoice with it. They're in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. By the time he gets to 2 Corinthians, he says, I would that my joy would be with you all. That's a person who's wandering around just blessed, joyous, happy for other people. And here's what it kills in your life it kills envy. It kills jealousy. It'll destroy strife. It knocks down things that we really struggle with in our world. I've had people in my office and they were furious over other people being blessed. Mad at God. Mad at them. Don't let that be you. There's a number of more things here we can look at. This is so distinctively Christian. Being sensitive to disappointment. Weeping with people who weep. Actually looking at someone and having empathy and sympathy. Having compassion that then goes to action. You know it's hard to be around sad people. People. Can I tell you, it's hard to be around sad people, but that's exactly what they need. I'm not saying every time you find out someone's going through a tough time, you need to, you know, stalk them or anything, but. When people are going through a tough time, they need to know it's going to be okay. And sometimes, and I can tell you this, all of us who who do memorial services and funerals, you know, sometimes the very best thing we can do is just simply go cry with people. Just go be there to weep with them. You know what? You don't have words when a parent has lost their child, there's no words. I don't have a magic book of words for people. There's very few passages of Scripture that even deal with that subject matter. But you know what I can do? I can go sit down and hold them and cry with them because they're dying inside. And to have that kind of compassion is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. Just let them know you care. And in doing so, you are being sent by the Lord to let them know he cares. To weep with those who weep. That's why Lamentations chapter 3 says, his compassions they fail not. The book of James in chapter 5 says, his, he is full of compassion and rich in mercy. So that we're not consumed. It's part of the Lord's character. And in fact, if you have that character, the book of Colossians says you're going to be kind and you're going to be compassionate and you're going to be humble and you're going to be gentle and you're going to have patience. These are part of that new nature that we get, that we get when we give our lives to Jesus. Amen? That's what happens. It's supposed to work out of us. There was a a really interesting thing, and I was reading a history of the temple during the time of Jesus, and just before the temple was destroyed, the temple had nine gates into the temple complex, but there were two gates at the southern end of the temple complex. Both of them had a ramp that led up to the temple mount itself, up to the edge of the court of the Gentiles, and one was an entrance and one was an exit. And the high priest would actually stand at the gate, the entrance into the court, or not the high priest, but the priest that were serving in the temple courtyard. They would have a member of of the Levitical class that would stand there. And about once an hour, they would have the people who were coming in the entrance turn around and go through the exit. And the reason was this. They didn't want always those who had joy as they were coming in to miss the fact that there were some that had sadness going out and vice versa. It was to teach compassion. Those coming in saw those going out, and those going out saw those coming in. That family is life. There are people who were coming in, good things happening in their lives. There are people who are going out. they're, they're discouraged. And we need to be ready to weep, to to be what that person needs. A fifth thing there in verse 16, the first part, incredible virtue of being impartial. We are a partial people. We like to hang out with who we like to hang out. We like to be around people that you know are like us or be around people who maybe can give us something we are a people humanly speaking that is partial we hang out in our own racial groups at times we hang out in our own socioeconomic groups at times we hang out because we actually have in our humanness an air of partiality most people prefer to be around people who have as opposed to those who have not Brothers and sisters, let that not ever creep into the church, to the body of Christ. This should be the most impartial place on the planet, right here in God's house. There shouldn't be rich and poor. There shouldn't be black and white. There shouldn't be those who are intelligent and those who are not. There should be one body of Christ, and we should be absolutely impartial to all of those distinctions because Jesus is. There's only one body. There's only one Lord. And if you're saved, which I believe a vast majority of you here tonight are, then we should be an impartial people. There shouldn't be cliques. There there shouldn't be a a group of haves and have-nots. And so Paul writes this to us. James actually warned if a man comes into an assembly wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, he says don't automatically send him to sit in the good place. You know, one of the reasons, because I'm a person, I'm a human, one of the, one of the reasons that I have Absolutely no idea of anyone's giving. Nobody's. I don't know if any of you give or don't give. I have zero idea. None. The reason for that is I don't ever want to be one of those pastors who sits around and looks at that list and picks out the 100 biggest givers in the church and says, I want to go to lunch with you. I just want to be available to whoever God sends me to have lunch with. I want to be impartial. I don't even want that information. I don't even want to know it. So I don't. We should all be that way in all things. There shouldn't be a distinction that causes you to either give or withhold The glorious things that God's doing in your life, they should be available for God to use with anyone anywhere at any time. Amen? It's part of who we are. It's this new life that we live in Christ. We're to uh, avoid haughtiness or high mindedness. It's interesting because the original language here, hupsiola fronantes, actually means big headed. It means to be, well, in their head. It it means to have a swollen head puffed up with yourself. Don't have a swollen, puffed up head about yourself. A lot of people have a pretty inflated sense of their own ego, their own value, their own worth, and it ends up showing itself in self-seeking pride. Pride. It gives you reluctance to show respect for those who should be respected. You know, sometimes I, I wander around, I just arbitrarily wander around and see what's going on. You know, we have hundreds of people volunteering in all kinds of areas, and they are no less important than me. Not a bit. They have a different function, different gifting. But in God's eyes, every last one of us has the same level of importance. We're all his children. And so we should have that type of a view of everyone. We shouldn't be big-headed. We shouldn't be high-minded. Treat people like that, it, it breeds an air of respect for everyone. That's what the Lord wants in this church. You see, as Luke would record the words of Jesus, he said, you know, if you give a lunch and you give a dinner and you invite your friends or your brothers or sisters, he's not talking about it's bad to invite your family or to have rich people come to your house. He's not talking about that at all. What he's saying is make sure that your motivation is correct. See everyone the way the Lord sees them. Having value. There's something that that person has that God put them on this earth with to bless the entire body of Christ and most likely you personally. It kind of levels the playing field for us. It's a beautiful way to live your life. And combined with that, number seven, don't be wise in your own eyes. You know, all of us have the ability to think and reason God gave us that. But sometimes we let those things kind of get in the way of everything else. All of a sudden, the only opinion that matters is our opinion. The only person that rightly sees things is, is yours or mine. And it's super dangerous, and let me tell you why. Because the best way to learn anything is to surround yourself self with people that know more than you do. And so if you, you wander around kind of in this perpetual state of being lifted up in your own eyes, wise in your own eyes, you shut off all of those gifts that God's put in everyone else's life. And before you know it, not only can you yourself or I myself cannot be taught anything, but all of a sudden, everything lands on our desk. It stops with me. The person that has an inflated sense of their own value is stuck doing everything for themselves. I'm too lazy for that. No, I'm just kidding. I I enjoy having other people bring ideas and think through things and go, you know what? That's better than my idea. That's not an affront to me. That's God blessing me with someone who has an idea that's better than mine. That's someone who has giftings that are different and or better than mine. That's acknowledging that all of us have meaning and purpose and so anyone that God puts into your life, what a wonderful way for you to receive from the Lord is by receiving from someone that which God has sent. Maybe their idea is better than yours. It leads you to pursue eagerly fellowship with other Christians. It doesn't push people away, it brings people in. You know when you value people it brings them in. When you devalue people, it pushes them out. When you start with the beginning point that everyone is valuable in Christ and thereby they are valuable to you, they're valuable to me, then people are drawn into that. It's self-sustaining because people like being liked, amen? Well, maybe some of you don't like being liked. I like being liked. I like people to say, "You know, you know, I, I really enjoy my conversation with you." I had a great time. It was wonderful. The way you do that is by affirming other people, making sure they know that they matter to you and they matter to God. But if you just think you're the answer, you're going to have a very short list of friends. It's going to be you, yourself, and I eventually. You'll be very lonely because most people like to be affirmed. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And now the really hard parts. (laughs) (laughs) Told you this is tough. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, and I want you to read this very carefully, because sometimes it's not possible. But there is always a side that is your side. The way you can see it, what you can do. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, from your side of the equation, you have an obligation before the Lord to live peaceably with all men. As much as you can control, you can't make other people do what God tells them to do, but you do have responsibility for your own actions. That is a biblical principle. Sometimes people say, well, I don't have to forgive them. I don't have to like them. Yes, you do. You have to do your part to do what God tells you to do. And when you link all these things together, that means even to your enemies, you're supposed to be good. Because that does lie with you. It's what it plainly says. So the next time you get the thought you don't need to forgive, go back to this verse. Next time you get the thought, well, I'm going to give them a piece of what they gave me, go back to this verse. Go back to these verses and see how that matches up with your hatred towards someone. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit that you have not done what lies with you. You have simply picked up one of these things you're probably not supposed to do and done it. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves But rather give place to wrath. And the wrath here that's spoken of is the only wrath that's spoken of in the entire Bible. And that is the wrath of God. God's righteous indignation towards all wrong, towards all sin. God one day will fully punish all wrong and all sin but it is his day, his time, his way. It's not your way and your time. Give place for God to do what God needs to do in someone's life. If they need, here's a way to shorten it, if they need a whooping, God can do it. If they need a beat down, God can do it. If they need to go to the woodshed, God can do it. If they need to have something extracted out of their life, God can do it. If they need to learn a hard lesson, let God do it. You see, these are really difficult things. Give place for it, and here's why. This is the original command, For vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Straight out of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. You want to live a miserable life? Spend all your time trying to repay every wrong that's ever been done to you. You want to be miserable? There's a recipe for it. Spend all of your time trying to repay evil for evil. Getting even, so to speak. Focus on retribution. It's a wonderfully fruitful adventure. You can wander around and be miserable all day, every day. You'll ruin every relationship. You will taint most of the words that come out of your mouth. You will be so caught up in bitterness and anger and hate that you will be absolutely useless to the Lord and completely miserable as a human being. You don't want to do that. And God doesn't want you to do that, so he tells you don't. He tells me don't. And therefore, check this out. You talk about getting tough? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. I, God, I'm not doing that. I am not taking a meal over to my enemy. You want to check your own heart and blow your enemy away? Do it sometime. Maybe it's not a meal. May, maybe it's you, you just send him a card. Maybe you shoot them off an email. You've been having some kind of exchange with somebody and they have ripped you up one side and right down the other. You want to freak them out? You want to cause them to think that the sky is falling? Then you love on them. Let me really straighten this out for you. If you want to put them in the hands of Jesus, love on them. If you want to take them into your hands, then you keep being mean-spirited and angry. If you want to try and get your pound of flesh, you can do that. God's not going to stop you. But you will never transform an enemy until you make that enemy your friend. You won't. And that's true in politics. That's true in sociology. And it's definitely true in the kingdom of God. Because the way that we make people our friends is by leading them to Jesus. And if we're leading them to Jesus, we're supposed to all be like Jesus, which means we even need to do good to those who hurt us. And when you do it, you want to, here's a marriage tip for you. You get into a little, uh, shall we say, strong fellowship with your spouse. I can tell you a sure way to square that away. Be loving. Be kind. Do good. Admit your own faults. Admit your own weaknesses. Say I'm sorry. And then act like you're truly sorry by doing good if you want to fix it. I can tell you that principle will fix anything. And I mean anything. If you really mean it. If it's received with gladness into your marriage. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Notice what it doesn't say here. What's missing is actually maybe even more important. It's saying for all of our wrangling and trying to get even with people and, and hating on them, that will never fix the situation. It won't cause any good in your life. It may give you heart disease. It may cause you to need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It, it may put you in the hospital for stress and ulcers, but all of the returning evil for evil will not ever. Fix the situation. Ever. So he says, Don't return evil for evil. Pretty plain. It's really a reiteration. Kind of restates what verse 14's already said. It's like, Look, you, you, you don't do it. You see, in the Old Testament, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was a command. But people always take that to the extreme. See, you gouged out my eye, I'm going to gouge out your eye. No, that was a prohibition on doing something worse to the person who hurt you. That's why it says that. It was not a command that you needed to take the person's eye. It was a command that you could go no further than taking the person's eye. People always misinterpret that. They think, well, you know, he gouged out my eye, I'm going to gouge out his killed my cow, I'm killing his cow. Stole this, I'm going to steal that. That's not what it says. It was a prohibition of man's evil heart. Because the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and his strength. What would God do? God would forgive. You see the great commandment in the Old Testament still the great commandment in the New Testament, except it's added to it and love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're supposed to love the Lord our God and be exactly like him, and we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself, which I don't know about you, but I, don't, I like my eyes. I want to keep them. <laughs> Am I going to take my neighbor's eye if he accidentally takes my eye? Of course I'm not. So God actually reminds us, look, here's as far as you can go. But I would encourage you, don't ever go there. Do what I would do, which is to forgive. Let that person know that you're a child of God. We'll get into this next week in great detail because we'll start the first seven verses of chapter 13, which are the Bible's most clear, absolutely definitive treatment of civil human government. And so if you've ever had any questions on about the, the role of civil government in the life of a believer, we're covering that next week. So invite your friends, your family out. People think sometimes the church ought to be the police, and sometimes uh, and people have all kinds of weird ideas about what the church ought to be doing. The Bible is very clear on the role of civil government. And there are things that the government's supposed to do, and there are things the church is supposed to do. And they do not mix. So let me be very clear there is civil government, and there is the church. And while the church is supposed to affect every life for the cause of Christ, the church is supposed to be the church, and the government's supposed to be the government. They have two completely different purposes. Complementary at times, but very different. Be here next week for that. Just a little plug for next week's day. He says the the ninth thing, always respect what's right. You see, not only don't return evil for evil, but always respect what's right. You, You see, when you start respecting what's right, everybody can be on the same page. But if your respect is for the person who can get the most out of somebody else or beat somebody up, or is the most powerful, or has the most money, Or maybe they're in the in crowd. You see, respect is supposed to be based on what's right. And in this case, it means right before God. Respect what's right. Here's the crazy part. That would include your enemies. Because he's already said, do good to those who persecute you. Do good to those who have hurt you. That means we as the body of Christ should respect everyone, even people with whom we vehemently disagree. I was flying down to Belize last week. God always does this to me. He knows that I want to just be by myself. So he sticks people next to me that will not let me do that. On one of the legs of my flight, I'm sitting next to a man who's very obviously a gay man. And he's talking about his boyfriend and all these things. And I'm like, (laughs) Lord, don't let me blow your witness right here. I started talking to him, and within an hour, I got to, you know, talk to him about, you know, how he felt about things that were going on in the world, and he he was just a mess. He was hurt. A guy's crying sitting next to me. He's bawling his eyes out. And I got a chance to tell him about Jesus, but it all started because instead of doing what my flesh wanted to do, which is, I'll just sit this way. (laughs) I gave him the respect of a fellow member of the human race and a sinner who needs a Savior. I didn't get a chance to lead him to faith, but he got to hear the gospel. And it just came from simply respecting him. It wasn't the time and the place to go into every single detail of his life. And I just simply told him, I'm a pastor, I'm a believer in Christ. I believe what the Bible says. I believe what the Bible says about human sexuality. We did get that far. We talked about marriage. I believe it's between a man and a woman. You know what he said? So do I. You see, you might have thought because of the initial conversation, well, it's not going there. Respect people. You get a chance to talk to them when you do that. If you disrespect them, you will not have a, talk to, a chance to talk to them. Simple respect goes a long way. And respecting what's right means that they have value. They were created in the image of God, amen? That's a biblical truth. Don't forget that when you're dealing with people who are caught in sin. We're gonna see this on Sunday. Sunday. We're starting to get to some of these most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. This woman who comes to the well. Man, Jesus could have gone, I'm not respecting her. There's no intrinsically good thing in her. Oh, yes, there is. She was created in the very image of God. And thereby has value. Live at peace with everyone. These are attitudes that that don't have a condition. Would you please notice this? It doesn't say live at peace with everyone who's peaceable to you. Live at peace with people who are good to you. Live at peace with, you know, people that you actually like. It says live at peace with everyone. Period. Period. And that doesn't that you could extrapolate that out to nations and people groups, races, or ethnicities. You could carry it to everything. He just says everyone. Doesn't matter who they are. Live at peace. As much as it lies with you. You take care of your side. You leave the results in God's hands. Don't assume that there needs to be war between you and anybody. You know, one of the things that you learn very quickly when you travel internationally is to put down prejudice. When you travel around the world, you have to put down prejudice. When you're in the middle of someone else's country, it's their country. You know, all of a sudden you're not the top dog anymore. I don't matter in the South Bay. I sure don't matter in Belize. (laughs) They don't have no idea who I am. I'll tell you, when you start caring about people and you care about their country and you care about their living, you care about what's going on with them, you care that their economy's bad, when you care about other people, you make friends. I have friends all over the world. It's nuts. We left the airport, we've got this caravan of cars that wants to just go to the airport and say goodbye. That's from being friendly. It's from just being nice. Living at peace with people, loving on them. And finally, as we close this out, don't avenge yourself. Oh, you might have the right to, according to the plans of man, But we're to leave room for the wrath of God. And when God does the final accounting, everybody's going to get exactly what they deserve. Here's what I'm praying for for everyone. Grace upon grace. Amen? Mercy upon mercy and peace upon peace and joy upon joy. I I don't want my worst enemy to perish and spend eternity separated from God in hell. So I I don't want to avenge myself. It's going to keep somebody from coming to faith in Christ. If they're going to see me as a Christian seeking retribution against them, then I have a problem with me. I've got an issue. If I were to try and right every wrong by doing wrong to someone who's wronged me, I'd spend my whole life doing that. You talk about useless and fruitless. No, don't avenge yourself. He quotes from the original Mosaic law. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's repeated, by the way, in the book of Hebrews. There's a divine time for God's wrath. He's going to pour it out. People will pay soon enough. If there's a payment that needs to be made, let God extract it from them. Don't you do it. Don't even try. It's just given place for the enemy, and in essence, adding to what's already been said, overcome evil with good. To withhold vengeance is one thing; quite honestly, that requires you doing nothing. Ultimately, it's you just don't act on what you might be thinking. But to return good for evil, you got to work at that one. Amen. I do. To actually do good to someone who's hurt you is a whole different matter. And here's what happens when you live this way you start loving, you start living, you start being God's way. We can't allow evil to ruin our lives, we can't allow evil to run our lives, we can't allow hurt to be our identity. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus, and behold, old things, all things, are passing away. I am not who I used to be. I'm not defined by the things that have been done to me. I'm not defined by the hurt that's, that's been in my life. Like all of you, there's probably not a person in here who couldn't run down through a very sizable laundry list of wrongs that have been done to you. I would venture to guess it's literally no one. You could think back in your life, well, this person did that, and that person did this, and I suffered this injustice, went through this problem. These are the things that happened. As a child of God, we're to live on a level above those hurts, above those pains, above the things that normal people without Jesus do struggle with. We're not supposed to be struggling with that. We're supposed to be busy about our Father's business, which is loving people. Loving people who've hurt us. See, anyone can return good for good. Anyone can return evil for evil. Those two things are the natural response of our flesh. But to do the opposite of that, that's a Jesus thing. And that's the way we're supposed to live. Our lives are supposed to be Jesus things, amen? Amen? That's who we are. You call yourself a Christian. That's what you're saying. I'm a Jesus thing. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a mini Jesus, if you will. Even if your enemy hates you, nothing gets better. You, you still have the grace of God, amen? So if you gain this whole world, what did Jesus say? If you gain this whole world and lose your soul, What good is that to you? So let's not worry about gaining this whole world. Let's worry about gaining Jesus. Being like him every day. As much as we can. Through all these things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you stand? Let's close in prayer. We'll have some of the pastors come forward if you need prayer after service. Maybe you got one of these areas you're particularly struggling with. Probably most of us do. If you want prayer for it, I'd love to pray with you. Worship team's coming back up. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. This would be impossible, except that we are the redeemed of the Lord. We've been transformed Made into your image. Blows us away, God. That you would love us that way. That you would work in our lives that way. That, that you would allow us. Oh, God. That you would allow us into your family. You've adopted us. And it's not the type of adoption we think of. We're not second class citizens in heaven All the rights and privileges that are assigned to Jesus the Son are given to his adopted kids. One day even including sharing in your glory. And so God, will we live glorious lives while we're here on this earth? Or not so we can be in comfort, but because we want to make sure everyone knows you. And so if we live heavenly lives, that's the best way that they can see you, Jesus. Please help us to do that. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, God, for your word, the power of it. Would you bless us, Lord, with these things being truth in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.